Not everything in life is as it seems. And that's true in the world of crime as well. Such as today's tale of a screenwriter who went missing and then was found dead under very unusual circumstances in a location that was thoroughly checked by police. This isn't a missing 411 story. We're getting into conspiracy town this week, folks. Enjoy. podcast about bad things. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Killing Missing Hidden, also known as the No Spin Zone. I'm your surprisingly attractive host, Brad, former criminal defense attorney of remarkable success. Let's just be blunt about it. I hope you've come here for some true crime, as that's all we've got to serve up this week. Now, this story, I, uh, I need to apologize in advance because I think we're going to have to bounce around all over the story like a glitching Qbert arcade machine. That will probably only mean something to you if you're old enough to have been in an actual arcade before. But nonetheless, I typically, you know, write out at least an outline or some form of a script on each case I'm going to record, you know, so I can kind of stay on track. But this one... uh this one's tricky. I don't know how to tell this story in a straight line. I just don't. Uh, so we're going to dance around a little bit. It's one of those deals where, you know, part A only makes sense once you've heard part B, but part B requires the context that part C provides. And you can't really tell about part C until you know what's going on in part A. You know, this giant circular mess that we're going to be plowing through. Now go ahead and strap in and put on your thinking brains. Uh, this is puzzling, and it's one that I have no idea what the solution is. So I hope y'all can help. If you're at work listening to this, take notes. It will help you follow the case, and you'll also look busy to your boss, which is a double win. Now, Gary Divorce should be remembered for his screenwriting career particularly for his action movies, which were kind of on the wittier side. Um, the Dogs of War, Running Scared, Raw Deal, those were three films that DeVore pinned. Which means he got to work with the likes of Christopher Walken, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Billy Crystal, Tommy Lee Jones, and many other well-known stars of Hollywood land. He actually served as Tommy Lee Jones' best man, and even actors that he didn't have movies with. He, you know, ran in the same circles and got to hang out with these big shots and seemed to enjoy it. Since he worked in Hollywood, he was also surrounded by a whole mess of beautiful women. So it's not really surprising when you look into his history to see that he's dated or married some really famous women out there. Uh, his first wife was actually Maria Cole who was the widow of famous singer Nat King Cole. He dated Janet Jackson. He married an act, uh, actress, Claudia Christian. He, he just, he had a very big little black book, let's say. Uh, Gary was a bit of a character. He was known to fancy wearing Western style gear, such as large belt buckles, cowboy hats, all that mess. According to his family, that's just he grew up wanting to be a cowboy. And so since that's not a very well-paying occupation, he at least dressed the part. 
before he became a screenwriter, he worked as a trucker for six years. So he was a little rougher around the edges than Hollywood was used to, but I think that's what added to his charisma. And he, you know, despite living the Hollywood lifestyle for most of his life, he still kept up a lot of habits from his trucker days, including keeping a handgun on him just about all the time. Now, Gary went missing in June of 1997, and that's obviously why we're here to talk about. He was on a drive home from Santa Fe, New Mexico to Santa Barbara, California. He had gone to Santa Fe in an effort to kind of overcome some writer's block he was facing on a new script. And this change of scenery worked. Apparently, this was a common routine of his. He had a friend that lived in Santa Fe, and she would help him uh, kind of fix. She was kind of a script doctor, and so she would help him get past some of the tougher parts that he was dealing with. So he was apparently stopped at a motel on the way home around 1.15 to make a few changes to the final draft of the script that popped into his head while he was driving. And that's when he called his wife, uh, Wendy, to let her know what was going on and where he was. And that was the last time she ever spoke to her husband. Now, Wendy describes the phone call as odd. She claims that they kind of had a certain pattern to their phone calls and they had made an agreement early on in their marriage that they were always going to say I love you and when she said it to him at the end of the conversation he didn't say it back she said he sounded kind of tense so we don't really know what that's about but when we get into this we can start piecing some thoughts together now like I said uh, June of 1997 Gary goes missing and he's missing for an entire year No one could find any trace of Gary. No one had any leads, any tips. And this was despite there being a $100,000 reward out for him. Now, police investigators were able to determine the route Gary took home based on gas station receipts and other little details like that. Shortly after he went missing, Wendy said that a whole variety of men from the FBI, the NSA, the CIA, the Department of Defense, came to the house to offer condolences, but also wanted to poke around. And for whatever reason, she allowed it. And it was after one of these visits that she learned that the computer in Gary's office had been completely wiped clean. Like the only reason she noticed is she had gone in there to print off some uh, missing person flyers. And not only was her little template gone, but any program that could be used to create a a uh, flyer was deleted. Like it was a totally factory rebooted setting deal, you know. Now, uh, on top of that, Gary had a habit of keeping old drafts of scripts he was working on. Those were all missing. There was a book he had on covert operations that occurred in Panama. That was gone. And when a bunch of these suits were meeting with Wendy to share their condolences, a large number of them kind of said weird things that wouldn't you, you wouldn't say in a normal situation. For example, a former CIA agent told Wendy that, oh, we, we never kill one of our own, but then opined that Russian mobsters were after Gary 
another agent, I think this one was from the FBI, said that Gary wouldn't be found for years and then only his dry bones out in the desert. That's not really what you say to a grieving wife, but that's how these people talked, uh, which made things odd, at least to Wendy. During the course of the investigation, police insisted Wendy take a polygraph test. And again, that's not uncommon. You want to exclude her as a potential source of uh, or reason for Gary's disappearance. Well, when she took the polygraph test, she failed miserably. Uh, apparently, she did worse than a lot of people on death row do when it comes to answering questions. She convinced the police to let her take another one. And during this retest, she passed, but like just barely. She just literally scraped by on that second one. Now, as interesting as that little tidbit is, things are just about to get wilder. So like I said, Gary's missing for a year. And he's not found by the local police. He's not found by the sheriff's office. He's not found by even the private investigators Wendy hired. He's not found by the CIA or the FBI or any federal officials. He is found by an amateur detective. This fellow named Douglas Crawford kind of got interested in this case. And the media was reporting, you know, certain facts that the police had released. And using just those facts, he was able to piece together the probable location that Gary went missing. He believed that Gary must have crashed into the California aqueduct and drowned or otherwise died on impact. And he went to the spot where he thought it happened. And by God, he found a piece of a taillight sitting there on the concrete slopes. So he took that taillight to a local Ford dealership and confirmed that it matched the taillight used on Gary's vehicle, a Ford Explorer. Now, when Crawford called the police, it was on, a, I believe, a Saturday. And they dismissed him. They said, now we've already looked in that area on foot, through helicopter, there's nothing there. When he told him that he had physical evidence indicating that there's at least a Ford Explorer in that area, they acknowledged they would search again, but they weren't going to do that crap on a weekend. They were going to wait for Monday morning. And guess what? When they arrived Monday morning, Gary's there, buckled into his Ford Explorer as if he had just been waiting around to be found. Uh, this vehicle was found in a portion of the aqueduct that wasn't terribly deep. I think I saw one officer suggest that at portions during the year where this car was found, the water would be as low as 12 or 15 feet. Um, but, you know, the entire aqueduct isn't very deep. It's 32 feet at its deepest point, which is just shy of 10 meters. And, you know, this is the main aqueduct that travels throughout California to deliver water for agricultural and other uses via this man-made concrete channel. You've probably seen it before, but I just think it's important to point out that this isn't a random river or stream. This is something the government built to um, help 
increase agricultural production and take the strain off of a lot of families who are dealing with water shortages. So um, Crawford goes there, finds the evidence, nags the police until they search and find them. Now, you think Crawford would be celebrated as a hero, but for some reason he became suspect number one in this case. But nothing, I mean, there was nothing to tie him to anything with it, so investigators eventually had to let that go. I got the impression they did so grudgingly. Now, I, I need to note here, too, that one of the officers involved in the initial search, shortly after Gary went with missing, found a white hood from a Ford Explorer floating in the aqueduct at roughly this position. But when these officers, this little group of officers kind of poked around in the aqueduct, they didn't find any evidence of a car being there. And this was at a time when nobody was really thinking that Gary was dead. The initial thoughts were he had fled or was, you know, he's a bit eccentric and he likes being a former trucker. He likes to drive to clear his head. And obviously he was under a lot of stress while working on the script. So during the early stages, their thoughts were he's gone off somewhere, didn't tell his wife. So Nave was thinking to look for a crashed vehicle, but it still strikes me as strange that as a police officer, you find a hood of a car floating in an aqueduct. And even if you don't think it's Gary, wouldn't you want to just search in case it's another accident? But what do I know, right? So anyway, that year later, uh, the investigators recovered the car and Gary's body was in there, like I said. But what was most noticeable to people who knew Gary was what wasn't found. The laptop he was using to write the script on was gone. Uh, Gary's handgun and all his spare ammunition was missing. And he was suffering from a lack of hands. Yeah, his, uh, his hands were missing. None of these items were found by divers as they searched the surrounding waters. Now, while this whole thing scene is unfolding, of course, you've got the media there. You've got onlookers watching the police drag up this car and all that. Well, this black helicopter kept flying over the scene. And one of the cameramen just happened to be standing next to the sheriff when it came by for a second pass. And the sheriff asked the cameraman if he could zoom in on it to get some identification on the helicopter so he could figure out where it was from and when the cameraman zoomed in he said there's no markings on that helicopter it is totally black the men inside are wearing nothing but black i can't see their faces and you know the sheriff thought that was a little odd and you know the media having just filmed hours of water and whatnot decided that watching this helicopter would be fun too so Several news cameras were now pointed at the helicopter, and at that point, it just kind of left the scene. Later that day, a, the sheriff received a call from a local Air Force officer letting him know that, look, we had been conducting some training operations in the area, and we understand that you had your investigation going on. Just wanted to let you know that was the deal. Um, you know, if you or the media or anyone else has any questions about what we were doing, Here's my name. Here's my number. Give me a call. I'll be happy to answer any questions you have. 
well, a few after a few days, you know, the media had called up the sheriff with a bunch of questions, and he had passed on the Air Force officer's contact information. But he was getting complaints that they gave him a bad number, and you know, some of the more cynical journalists were claiming the sheriff was just trying to blow him off. So the sheriff kind of got ticked and he called to speak with the officer. And again, this is within the same week of when Gary's found. So not long after he speaks to this officer for the first time. And when he dials up the phone number, it's disconnected. So the sheriff is more ticked and he calls the local Air Force base and I guess works his way up through the ranks so he gets to somebody who has the authority to know this information. And the sheriff basically says, look, one of your officers contacted me, told me about this helicopter flying over the scene, and I could call him back if he had any questions. Here's his name. Here's his number. Well, the Air Force said we don't have anybody on base by that name, and that number is not a number that would connect to this base. That was kind of a strange twist in this little saga. Now, I know y'all are wanting to talk about this, so let's talk about Gary's hands, or lack thereof. Now, if you go and pull up the actual homicide report and other supplemental reports, it indicates that his hands were removed, but 23 hand and finger bones were recovered. However, some investigative journalists began, began dugging in and managed to get a copy of the coroner's report. And the coroner's report says there was not 23 hand and finger bones. There were three hand and finger bones. And all three were thought to be finger bones. But it was determined that those bones were actually from a 200-year-old skeleton. Now, the state's coroner disputes this. He says, look, I had the bones, I looked at them, and I said he, didn't I? It's a she. Um, she described the fingers as being, you know, relatively fresh, if that's the right way to describe it. Uh, her, you know, she mentioned, look, tendons were still attached, and that's not something that would last 200 years. But the, this coroner also confirmed that, in her opinion, the homicide report was incomplete and it struck her as a touch dubious. Now, the sheriff's file, who kind of, you know, the sheriff led the primary investigation on this, the sheriff's file is reportedly over 600 pages, but it's not available for public inspection because the sheriff's office considers this case to be an ongoing and open investigation. So we don't know what's in those 600 pages the sheriff has compiled. Now, the official police report reached the conclusion that Gary must have driven off the road and into the aqueduct. Either suicide, drunk driving, who knows what, right? Okay, but this is a bit of an interesting conclusion because it's not really easy to get into the aqueduct, especially where Gary's car was found. Essentially, what you have to do is get off of the this major highway. I believe it was Highway 14 or 41. I should have written that down, but, you know, it's me. What do you expect? 
Um, anyway, you'd have to get off of that highway about two to three miles away from the aqueduct, drive in the median, uh, or I'm sorry, drive back on the freeway in the wrong direction. And you're doing this at night. And this is a section of roadway with no street lights. And Gary's headlights were not on when the vehicle entered the water. So he's driving in total darkness around these barriers that have been set up for the aqueduct and managed to drive through a 17-foot gap in the barriers at such a high rate of speed that he didn't leave any skid marks or other nonsense on the concrete going down. He was he managed to almost get into the water. I say almost because I assume the back end had to crash if there was some taillight laying there. Now, you know, that's how the scene is described in a lot of reports. I think total darkness is a bit of an overstatement. Apparently, Gary's Ford Explorer had been equipped with a special lighting system. And with this lighting system, at least some lights would have been turned on if it was set to the automatic setting. And that's not something that can be determined or wasn't looked into. So if we assume, you know, he paid extra for all this stuff, so you think he would have the light set to this automatic setting. Otherwise, why have it? Other side of the coin is it's really easy to determine whether or not a headlight has been running at the time of an accident. Uh, the filaments will, will show that evidence from the rapid change in heat when the casing to the light is broken. And we know at least the taillights were broken. So I, I'm going to assume with no evidence that the headlights or maybe some of these other equipped lights would have been busted too during the crash. And if that's so, forensic investigators could have figured out very easily whether or not these lights were on just by the way the filament inside looked. Okay, now while all this is going on, Wendy's kind of doing her own investigation. Uh, she was very much in love with Gary. I have no doubt about that. And, you know, when she lost him, she lost a big piece of her world. So she was heading her own investigation. And she was learning that Gary had this entire second life she really didn't know about. She had been a very trusting wife. And, you know, when they got married, Gary said, look, from time to time, people from the military or the CIA or the FBI are going to be calling looking for me. It's not what you think. There are going to be people that are, you know, helping me with the script. They're going to, you know, I'll have an FBI agent call because I need to talk to an FBI agent to get the correct perspective for what a character is doing in a scene. And, you know, the, it's, this isn't unusual. This, like, all of the military branches, all of the, you know, alphabet agencies tend to have like a Hollywood liaison who can help studios when it comes to understanding how certain things work, learning more about, um, you know, military formations or how the CIA would conduct an investigation or whatever they need to know. 
And, you know, so it's not odd that Gary's talking to these people. And in fact, it turns out that the CIA's Hollywood agent was a fellow by the name of Chase Brandon, who is Tommy Lee Jones' cousin, who again was Tommy Lee Jones was very close to Gary. Now, Wendy claims during the first several years of their relationship, she only received four such phone calls ever. But in the weeks leading up to Gary's disappearance, she received phone calls from CIA headquarters in Langley, Virginia, multiple times. And while she's doing this investigation, she's learning about Gary's second life. It kind of triggers a memory in Wendy's mind that she had walked into Gary's office several times while he was working. And sometimes he would fuss at her to get out in a kind of, in a kind of rude way, I guess you'd say. Well, she said every time this happened, she was looking at him working and he was reviewing documents in the Silleric writing. And that's the script that the Russian alphabet is derived from. And she would always ask, you know, what are you doing? Why, why do you have this stuff? And he would give some sort of dismissive answer like, look, I'm just doing research for a script, but you got to get out of here. I need, I need to focus. Gary had a publicist who was an interesting character, a dude by the name of Michael Sands, who turns out was a former military guy and apparently was known throughout Hollywood to maintain deep connections with several high-ranking military officers and other personnel, particularly those in the intelligence community. And another fun quinky-dink, the script Gary had been working on so hard was a story about the United States invasion of Panama at the end of 1989. While this is obviously uh, something that happened in history and whatnot, and there's all these official stories about what happened, Gary had apparently discovered some information that really the U.S. didn't go into Panama to focus on arresting the de facto dictator Manuel Noriega. It's that Noriega apparently had been hosting a number of honeypot parties for U.S. intelligence officials. And he had a sizable library of incriminating evidence he had been using to blackmail key figures in the United States government for years. Washington was sick of it, and they were coming to destroy his files. Gary was also claiming that senior military officials uh, from the intelligence community broke into and stole over $45 million from the Panamanian Central Bank during the chaos of the invasion. Now, a honeypot, just, I'm saying that like y'all know what it is, and I'm sure some of y'all do, but a honeypot party or a honeypot operation is a term used in the intelligence community where the target of your investigation, you try to put in a compromising sexual situation that you can exploit for your benefit. For example, the you know kind of the classic example you think of is you've got a very conservative, say, senator who loves to scream and rant about how homosexuality is a sin. So you create a honeypot situation where he ends up having sex with three underage boys, and you videotape it. 
So now you've got all this leverage over the senator because if you release the video, everybody's going to know what a hypocrite he is. The party he's a member of probably won't appreciate his false morals. They'll need to distance themselves from him. I can't imagine the voters of his state being very pleased to see that this fire and brimstone senator is actually the opposite of what he's been preaching. Now, imagine doing that on a widespread level. And that's what Noriega supposedly was doing, is he was constantly throwing these parties at his, his mansions or his ranches, and he would invite all these diplomatic officials over. And rumor has it, you know, when he showed up at the party, there would be drugs, there'd be, you know, basically naked women, naked men, naked girls, naked boys. You had free run of the place. No questions were asked. But of course, of course, everything's bugged. Everything's got being video recorded. And so it's amazing to me that if this is true, these intelligence officials would fall into such an obvious trap. This isn't just wild speculation. There was actually an investigation done in December of 1989, right before the invasion of Panama, by the British newspaper, The Correspondent. And they released this huge article claiming that Noriega had a stranglehold over many men of influence in Washington because of these sex tapes. But this story was quickly buried for whatever reason. It was published and it got out there, but somehow there's no record of the story anywhere. No other major newspaper ever followed up on it. In fact, um, one of the people we'll talk about in a minute who's who's an investigator just happened to stumble upon the article in a little British local library that had kept a copy of it. And that was the only place he had ever seen it, despite being uh, a uh, professor of uh, journalism and having a PhD in um, basically political journalism. So, we don't have to speculate on whether or not that's true. We have at least one report confirming that it's true. And then that information disappearing. There's also a little bit more evidence of CIA influence that can be inferred. Uh, e, the entertainment channel, had filmed an episode for their series called Mysteries and Scandals about Gary's death. And in, in it, they got into some of this Panama stuff. And they, you know, finished putting the episode together and were preparing to air it when a military contractor that was working with several uh, cable channels as a consultant came to E and said, look, I know y'all are doing the story on Gary. You can't air it. You just can't do it. And due to his influence, the show, the episode was never shown. And allegedly, you just can't find a copy of this episode. Now, I haven't looked. Maybe it's all over YouTube and I sound like an idiot. <laughs> but from the reports I read, investigators could not find a copy of this episode. 
right. So I know I said I'd be bouncing around. I feel like I really, really am. But I'm going to try to focus a little bit more now on Gary's secret life. So we know he makes movies for a living, or he at least writes movies for a living. And he has to obviously be able to be creative and come up with interesting and entertaining scripts to be able to feed his family. He stumbles across the story about the U.S. invasion of Panama, decides it could be a cool movie. Why on earth would people insist that the U.S. government put out the state-sponsored hit on Gary then? Well, it's because of Gary's secret life. So, in 2015, a book and documentary were released called The Writer with No Hands. The book was written and researched by Dr. Matthew Alford, the professor I was talking about a few minutes ago. And the documentary was kind of a tag-along during the research to see what could be uncovered. Now, Dr. Alford's research determined that Gary didn't just have Hollywood-style contacts with the CIA and other agencies. He actually worked with them. Like, not on his projects, on their projects. He would literally go on missions with, like, psyops, psychological warfare teams, and things like that as a consultant or as a photographer or something like that. And so he'd have to lie to his wife to be able to do this. And so, he, you know, he'd have to go to quote-unquote location shoots, he would tell her. And then he would be seen in places like the Tonopah Air Force Base, which you've never heard of. It's also known as Area 52, uh, out in Nevada. He was sent multiple times to South America with U.S. military and intelligence forces. There was an anonymous source from President Reagan and President George H.W. Bush's White House who confirmed to Dr. Alford that Gary had some very, very deeply rooted relationships with the CIA, among other agencies, and would regularly travel to South America or Central American countries, including Panama, at the request of the agency. The FBI actually noticed Gary's travels and began an investigation on him. But the CIA came in and kind of said, yo, you got to back off here. And so they stopped their investigation. All according to this one source. Now, Wendy claims that her investigation confirmed these allegations, at least in part. Um, she learned on her own or through her hired actors that Gary was actually in Panama with a senior CIA official when he had told her and all their friends and family that he was going to a location shoot with a production team on the other side of the U S and she also learned that Gary was placed with CIA special operations agents during many of his supposed work travels. Wendy uh, also raised the specter that Gary's body wasn't right when it was found. I mean, besides missing hands, which is always not right. Um, but she said, look, his wallet was found in his back pocket. And Wendy said, he just never did that. He always carried it in his front pocket. It was something from his trucker days that had just become a habit. And, you know, second, Gary was strapped into his vehicle with his seatbelt. 
But she said, Gary never, ever wore a seatbelt. And, you know, Gary, Wendy said, you know, despite this massive search that she had funded with her own money, none of her private investigators could find one single person who saw a white SUV traveling down the wrong side of this major highway the night of Gary's disappearance. And she says that's just not possible. During an interview in 1998 that Wendy had with CNN, she disclosed that Gary had recently been very bothered by some of the information he had discovered about the United States using the Panamanian banks to launder money. He was concerned about the way the invasion was conducted. He was worried about how U.S. troops allegedly killed many civilians and used this invasion as an opportunity to test a lot of experimental weapons, often on Panamanian forces, but sometimes just on the citizenry. Remember the 1.15 a.m. phone call to Wendy, right? She says that's the last time she spoke to Gary. Well, for some reason, there's no record of this phone call ever being made, either by Gary's cell phone or according to the landline records at the house. And there's no explanation that's ever been offered for that. Now, let's go back to Chase Brandon, that CIA entertainment liaison officer. Uh, he was appointed to his position in 1996. Prior to that, he had spent 25 years as a special agent in Panama. And it was well known that Gary and Brandon had multiple meetings together before Gary went missing. An expert on kind of the relationship between these federal government agencies in Hollywood was aware of um, the meetings Gary was having. And the number of them. And she said, look, Gary was meeting with the CIA beyond a normal number of times. Now, one really interesting point to me that you can find on the documentary, The Writer with No Hands, a fellow by the name of Frank Thorwald was a former White House advisor on national security affairs. This gave him the highest clearance ranking in the United States government. Like only a thousand folks get to this level. And he was one of them. Well, for whatever reason, he was curious about Gary's disappearance and on his own contacted the C a friend at the CIA. And the friend said, okay, well, if you want to learn about Gary, go to this website. So Frank here goes to the website and when he pulls it up, it's nothing but extremely graphic pornography, including illegal pornography, e.g. child pornography. Now, Thornwald here admitted that this was a common tactic to dissuade people from asking any more questions. He knew that the FBI and the CIA would do things like this because... Now, if he keeps pressing the issue, they would have cause to come and arrest him and show the world that he had kitty porn on his computer, that he had been looking at it, right? Now, he, he wasn't totally 
Thorgid. Um, and he talked to some other sources. And he learned Thornwald, Thornwald, oh my goodness, Thorwald, as he would probably say his own name, learned that Gary actually was stopped on his way home the night he went missing by someone who was overly interested in Gary's new script. And if you watch the documentary, this interview with Thorwald, you can... I'm certainly not an expert in body language, but if you watch the documentary, you can just tell that Thornwald is very uncomfortable discussing everything from the website on. He knows he shouldn't be talking about this is the impression that I got from watching it. Or he knows that he has to be very careful about talking about this. Um, bouncing around again, the coroner's report we've touched on before, you know, we've got, I got the one issue with them saying there's, you know, dozens of hands and finger bones they found when they really only found three. There's a dispute about the quality of those bones. Some say they were 200 years old. Some say, well, the state coroner says, no, they were fresh. They still had tendons on them. What's undisputed is the coroner's report indicated the body in Gary's vehicle was Gary, and they made this determination and match based on dental records. They said the body in Gary's vehicle had gone through the exact same bridge work that Gary had. But here's the thing. Gary had never had any bridge work performed. And so if this is the key piece of evidence saying we've got Gary here, it doesn't seem to carry a lot of weight. Now, his hands, too, those being missing are important because they would provide a clear identifying piece of information if they were still attached and if it was Gary. See, Gary had broken his pinky finger when he was a teenager and never had the bone set properly. So his pinky finger actually kind of grew off at like a roughly 60 degree angle from the rest of his fingers. It's very noticeable. It was nothing he tried to hide, but certainly if the pinky finger was still there, it'd be very easy to identify Gary. The hands being gone raised the specter that, they were cut off to prevent his body from being easily identified. And as far as I know, once the coroner matched the bridge work, that's when the coroner was satisfied this was Gary and no further tests were done to try to match the corpse with Gary. Now, some of Gary's friends and colleagues publicly were saying that they thought Gary had kind of grown frustrated with Hollywood because he wasn't getting any, he wasn't getting in the credits anymore. Um, you know, he had gone from being this big time screenwriter in the 80s and early 90s to kind of more of a script doctor where studios would say, hey, we've got the script, we really like it, but we think it needs some polishing. He would work on it. He would get it up to snuff, make the studios happy. 
but then he would never get any credit for it. You know, there's no writing credits to be had if you're just polishing up a script that somebody else has written. And, you know, he really wanted to be in the credits. He wanted people to know his work. And so his friends were thinking, look, the script that he was working so hard on, the whole reason why he was busting his butt is because he wanted to create another movie, one that would blow Hollywood away. Now, at least one person who wouldn't go on the record believes that Gary was working on the script. It was about the Panamanian invasion. But Gary traded that script to the CIA for his for a new life, basically. That they the CIA staged his death and gave him a new identity and relocated him elsewhere so he could begin a new life. And another little tidbit that kind of would support this theory that we haven't mentioned is we talked about Gary's wallet being in the wrong pocket. Everything was in his wallet as it should be, except for four photos of Wendy, his wife, that he always kept in his wallet. So it's odd that the cash would be there, the credit cards would be there, the ID would be there, whatever other miscellanea he kept in his wallet was all there, but four pictures of his wife were missing. Now, when Dr. Alford interviewed Gary's publicist, Michael Sands, in the middle of their interview, Sands gets this conveniently timed phone call from an undisclosed caller, and it caused the interview to be shut down suddenly. Sands basically refused to speak to Dr. Alford anymore, but he told Dr. Alford that if he can keep his head down for three weeks, Sands may be able to get some evidence that Dr. Alford would be very interested in. During a subsequent conversation, and this was before the three-week deadline, Dr. Alford was trying to kind of pester Sands and keep him on track and make sure he wasn't just being blown off, you know. But Sands said, look, you got to be really careful here, okay? Because the CIA knows how to make everyone's life miserable. And that's all he would say. He wouldn't elaborate any further. He would just say, look, I have to be careful. You have to be careful. These are some dangerous grounds we're treading. And if the CIA doesn't like what it sees from us, we're not going to have a pleasant experience. Before that three-week deadline ran, Sands died. But it wasn't anything conspiracy-related. He somehow choked to death on a meat sample at a supermarket deli. So it's not like the CIA, you know, choked him out and left him to die somewhere and stuck some salami down his throat. Um, it was just one of those freakish deaths that we don't expect, but it just happens. Now, this is really interesting to me. At the end of the documentary, The Writer with No Hands, Alfred, Dr. Alfred had kind of had a falling out with the filmmaker of the documentary. 
and they hadn't spoken for a few years before the movie or the documentary was finally ready to be released. And the director called Dr. Alford and said, look, do you want to make some short closing statement or something? And Dr. Alford says, okay, come by my house at this time. Dude shows up and Dr. Alford makes the statement that he is a hundred percent certain Gary did not die in a car accident that he has a very good idea of what really happened, but he was not investigating this anymore. He was done. This chapter of his life was behind him, and he wouldn't be speaking on the matter any further in the future. And he made this statement while wearing a clown outfit. And he insisted on doing this in a clown outfit. In fact, on the back of the book version, the writer with no hands, the back cover shows Dr. Alford in that clown outfit. And he claims that the reason he made that statement in the clown outfit is he wanted to make sure that he destroyed his own credibility to the viewers who watched the documentary because he didn't want anybody to believe that he believed that Gary was the subject of some sort of political assassination, which is odd, very odd to me. Okay, I know I've been interjecting my opinions a lot throughout this one. I usually try to save all that for our conclusion, but I haven't been able to restrain myself. But now we're we're going to dig into this puzzle and. This is one with several thousand pieces, ain't it? So, gonna try and probably fail, but we're gonna try to move these puzzle pieces into some piles that make some degree of sense, okay? So, obviously, the basic theory that we've been staring at during this whole episode is that Gary's script was a hard hitting piece of nonfiction that would fundamentally expose the United States' interference in the governmental operations of another sovereign nation nor to destroy evidence of government officials having sex with children and stealing money from another country. So let's try to tear this theory apart, okay? So why would Gary, who is known for making Schwarzenegger-esque action movies, want to write a hard-hitting political thriller that was really more journalistic than entertainment-driven? Was he that desperate to get his name back in the credits? Maybe, but if he went this route, would he not burn the heck out of every bridge he had with every political contact he had ever made during his life? You know, I'm of the thinking, and this is just Brad spitting stuff out of his mouth, someone who rubs elbows with A-list celebrities and enjoys the prestige of having friends of that ilk, as well as having friends in the world of spies and spooks, why would he choose to be outcast? Why would he do this political thriller where the U.S. is the bad guy instead of the good guy, where he would continue to get support from the governmental community? 
that would further your career a lot more, wouldn't it? Wouldn't I mean that just makes more sense to me. And this wasn't news. I mean, again, we already had that article from um, that British newspaper that had uncovered this honeypot operation that Noriega was running. But there was also a documentary released in 1992 called The Panama Deception that won a freaking Academy Award. And now, in fairness, this the Panama Deception documentary focused on the military aspect of the invasion and how badly the American media misrepresented what was happening in Panama to the American public. There's no mention of a child sex scandal. There's no mention of robbing the central bank. It just covered that aspect. And so Gary would have been going down an already worn trail. Now, again, his story would spice it up a bit, but why would he want to pick at the scab? I don't, I don't understand how this benefits him. And really, I don't understand how he thinks it's going to get made into a movie. Now, by the same token, if Gary's death was some sort of CIA hit, it sure was sloppy, <laughs> wasn't it? I mean, clearly you can't just pass this off as a car accident when the driver's hands are missing, you know? So... I like to think the CIA is more sophisticated than that. Maybe I'm wrong, but if they were going to kill someone, you know, you hear the stories from, at least in the United States, we hear stories about KGB hits during the Cold War and how neat and clean those were and how precise they were and how they were designed to leave all this doubt about what really happened or to strongly suggest that it was a mundane cause of death rather than you know a spy hit job why would the cia not be doing that the same way cutting off his hands is sending a message uh and maybe you know if you want to buy that the cia is doing this to send a message okay but why would it take a year for his body to be discovered wouldn't you want to have someone in the police find the car pretty quickly so the message is loud and clear to the rest of the writing community that you're not going to pursue this story any further. I mean, it just screams more of a cartel-type hit or a mafia-type hit, except for the delay in time. I don't think if you're going to send a message that you want to hide the body where nobody's going to see it. You know, you don't you don't write a letter and then not mail it. And that's basically what we've got going on here. Now, something else we have to talk about is whether Gary was in, in any sort of financial trouble. He had recently gone through a bankruptcy. He had previously gotten in trouble with the IRS for some tax issues. I think it was somewhere in the neighborhood of one5 or I'm sorry, 2.4, 2.5 million he owed in back taxes. But apparently before his death, all that had been sorted out. Now, I don't know how it was sorted out. So is it possible that he went to some mob connections or some cartel connections and borrow the money to pay it back 
pay back the IRS and then wasn't quick enough to pay back this criminal organization. And they take away his money makers, his hands, uh, because he's obviously not making any money to pay back the mob, say. Yeah, that that's just Brad's speculation, but it would be consistent with what I've seen in the past. Except for the fact that the body stays hidden for so long. That again, it doesn't send a message when nobody sees the message. Now, during the documentary, Dr. Alford interviews one of uh, the directors that Gary had formerly worked with and the director whose name I should have written down and I didn't, he said that he thought the idea that Gary started a new life was interesting. It was compelling to him. Um, he described Gary as being the sort that, you know, once he decided he was going to do something, he was just going to do it. And there wasn't really a force in this universe that could change Gary's mind. You take that statement, you couple it with Gary's history with women. You know, he, he bounces around pretty often. He was married four or five times. He had a ton of girlfriends during his single periods. Thorwald, that White House advisor, he also seemed to hint at this during the interview. Which would mean we have a fake death that's been discovered if he did start the new life. Again, that would also be a compelling reason to cut off the hands to make it harder to identify the body. You throw that together with the coroner saying that the homicide report, excuse me, the homicide report was incomplete at best. And you've got the curious situation of the coroner reaching the conclusion that the body was Gary's based off of dental work that Gary had never had done. And Gary's extremely familiar with Central America, maybe Latin America. It wouldn't be that hard for the CIA to relocate him if that's what he wanted. You know, maybe he had decided that Hollywood just wasn't going to give him writing credits anymore. He had a lot of friends in the CIA. Why not, you know, work for them? Become, uh, if he had worked with some of these special operations groups before, helping them, you know, with their psychological warfare and things like that, maybe he decided to turn that into a full-time gig. And the CIA was happy to do it because that got the script off of their radar. Everyone who knew something about the script, though, insists that it was focused on the Panamanian child sex angle. If we just accept that it's true, that all these people are willing to say the same thing, then that, to me, that does suggest more strongly that it could be used as a bargaining chip by Gary. You know, he's had this tax problems, he's had these money problems. He's had career problems, you know. Hey, give me a new life and I'll destroy everything I have on the scandal. Maybe that was the deal. You know, like we said earlier, CIA agents don't kill each other, but maybe blackmail isn't above, doesn't break any rules, you know. That's, of course, me spitballing, trying to connect some dots. 
but it seems plausible based on the information we have, assuming what we've been talking about is true. But is the story true about what was going on down in Panama and the honeypot operation? Gary has this information on a Panamanian honeypot. He wants to use it to make a return to stardom in Hollywood, and the CIA has to kill him over that if we take that approach. First, again, like I've talked about the body language of some of the people who are interviewed during the documentary is very telling. It really leaves you with the vibes, not only Thornwald, who I specifically mentioned, but several people being interviewed were clearly uncomfortable talking about this. They were clearly very careful about how they worded things. And it just gives you the strong vibe that, yeah, um, something nasty was going on. And Gary was looking into it and it had found some stuff. I personally find it shocking that Dr. Alford went from being completely all in on finding the truth to the story and working this honeypot angle and everything to, in the end, backing off, effectively denying his hypothesis and doing it in the most humiliating way he could. One thing you get from the documentary, and even Dr. Alford admits in his book, this story ruined his life. Like, trying to discover what happened to Gary, he lost his marriage. He had to live off of unemployment. I mean, he he basically almost ruined his career all in the pursuit of finding this truth. And then... He does this complete 180 and says he's done. I mean, what would it take for you to go on national TV dressed as a clown and say everything I've been working on in my life is a lie and I'm dressed like a clown because this is how the world should view me? I I never got the sense that Dr. Alfred was a coward. He didn't come across that way. But, you know, in my opinion, something must have scared the guano out of him. He got scared, you know, and personally, I just have to believe that he must have found some of the truth and then had that run in with the, you know, the CIA agent in black telling him that it'd be a shame if something happened to your kids because you won't let the story go. Or the other side of the coin, you know, some people react to the stick. A lot more react to the carrot. So maybe the CIA goes to him and says, look, you back off. You do whatever you can to make sure people don't believe you. And we'll send you a nice little check. Because what's interesting to me is allegedly after Dr. Alford gave up on pursuing the story, His life really changed for the better. Again, if you read his book and you watch the documentary, you see failing marriage. He's gaining weight. He's smoking a ton. He's he's living a very crappy life, okay? He has this PhD in political journalism, and he's going through a remedial training program to become an elementary school teacher, that he can't even get through 
because of following the leads on the story. I mean, he gets fired from that program that the British government is offering to help people rebuild their lives. But yet, after he abandons the story, all of a sudden he's getting lots of offers for teaching at different universities. He's doing um, talks at different conferences. It's strange. It's very strange. Now, me personally, you know, like I'm the sort that if you come to me and say, stop doing this or there's going to be trouble, I'm going to bow up on you and say, oh, yeah. And, you know, that's not necessarily a smart or healthy attitude all the time. But if you come to me and say, stop doing this and we'll give you money, fine. I'll be your little prostitute. So maybe Dr. Alford was too. And I don't say that in a negative way because obviously I would do the same thing. And, you know, it's curious too because in the book he addresses the clown situation. And he plays it off as no big deal. That didn't mean anything. You know, it just happened and now we're moving on with life. But again, it was a he decided to put that on the back cover of his book, which I can't understand. And again, bouncing around again, you know, this entire honeypot angle, the child sex that was allegedly occurring, the, you know, sending allegedly trusted senior White House officials to pornography websites when everybody asked about Gary. This bothers me so deeply because I so strongly believe it to be true. This is just such an easy way to dispose of an inconvenient target. You trick someone to go into a kiddie porn site and you own them. You know, just like if you get that senator on tape having sex with underage kids, you visiting a kiddie porn website is forever on your computer and the government can always come back and say, you were looking at kiddie porn because it was open on your computer. There's images on your computer of child pornography, thus you're in possession of it. And we're going to go against you. We're going we're to prosecute you. And now you instantly lose all credibility because who's going to trust some sicko pedophile that looks at kitty porn all day, right? And he can't defend himself because that's what some sicko pedophile would do. And, you know, with, with Thornwald, this is, like I said, this dude had the highest level of security clearance the U.S. offers. He had been through so many background checks and monitored and reviewed and and audited and was clean. He had to be clean to get to that level of, of clearance. And then just like that, he's going to go look at kiddie porn. I mean, he gets tricked into doing it, in my opinion. And, it, you know, he admits to doing it. And it's just... So ironic to me that here we have allegations of Panama doing it to the United States, and nobody wants to believe that, yet our own intelligence officials are doing it to other senior governmental officials in order to keep from questions about the story from being asked. So, I mean, we're using a honeypot to cover up a honeypot? <laughs> I mean, and I, I find it almost shocking that Thorwald was willing to admit to this on camera 
Because again, if they ever want to come after him, not only do they have his computer that they can tear apart, not only do they have whatever records they can get from his ISP, they've now got him on camera saying, yeah, I went to that website. I was tricked into going. And, you know, that's that's a hard charge to defend. Um, even an accidental visit can get you in a lot of trouble, you know. And we could go in circles forever, I think, discussing the ins and outs of this case. But I, I'm just going to jump to my conclusion because I know y'all can't spend all day with me. My wife doesn't know I have y'all over and she would not be happy. Plus with missing work and to have you all here. And then somebody ate all the salsa. It just, it wouldn't be good for me. All right. Here's what I think. I believe the honeypot angle hundred percent. That just clicks with me. We have fought wars over stupid, petty things before, right? So why would this be any different? And we've heard this story before, haven't we? Do you remember little Johnny Gosh? What did we learn in that story? About this underground ring of child sex trafficking that was designed to cater to the needs of the elite and may have also been used as a way to gain control over the members of the elite. We have heard rumors of Russia doing the exact same thing to U.S. officials, haven't we? I mean, you heard so much about Russia allegedly having some tape of former President Trump, right? Well, if all these other countries would do it, why would the U.S. not do it? But I am divided about the script. I want to believe the people who claim to have seen it. And maybe he truly did write it, but I just do not think he would turn on his government allies like this. Like I alluded to earlier, there is an honor code in the world of spies, and it's kind of perverted one, but still there's an honor code about betrayal. You never break your word. That's just considered the ultimate disrespect to your colleagues and to your agency and to your country. Like I said, you want to blackmail someone? Fine, that's fair game. But you don't betray someone like this. So again, Gary would know all this. He would know the rules to play by. So if he had created the script and if he had started showing it, sharing it with friends, it had to be for some reason. It had to be an insurance policy of some sort. He wasn't stupid. He was going to use this as leverage against the government in some way, if the script was truly written. Which, again, I, I can certainly see a scenario where he's telling friends what the script is about, and maybe he shows some pages of a script he's allegedly put together. But he, it's entirely possible he was doing that just for the appearance to make the CIA worry. Now, if, if he wanted something from the CIA, it looks like the thing he most likely would have requested was a new life. But why? We don't have any evidence that we're aware of that says Gary's got problems. Gary needs to get out of here. I mean, maybe it's there and we've looked over it, but it's hard to argue passionately for that angle, even though it kind of fits nicely 
in the story without some evidence pointing in that direction. Again, if those tax liens were still hanging over his head, I'd get it. I mean, $2.5 million is not easy to pay off. I mean, paying off my mortgage seems like an impossible task. Paying off my student loans feels like an impossible task, and they don't come anywhere close <laughs> to $2.5 million. So I, I find it... I find it odd that he would satisfy the IRS's lien and then want to disappear. I think you would make that decision before you gave the government $2.5 million, right? So I, I know I feel like I really bounced all over the place here and it was probably hard to follow and I apologize. Um, if I had spent another three or four weeks cleaning this one up, I probably could have made it flow a little bit better, but you know, with my weekly turnaround, I don't get that luxury. So that's my highly uneducated guess at what happened to Gary. I'll go with he faked a death to start a new life, even though I can't support the second part of that theory very well. And in the course of my research, you want to hear the best rumor I heard about where Gary ran off to that was being passed around as, you know, fact that he's in rural Alabama my my state yeah that he allegedly works at some small Walmart here out in the sticks love it yeah he's gonna leave this life where he can hang out with all these superstars and live in a nice house and bring in all this money to go stock shelves overnight at a country Walmart not what he imagined when he agreed to a new life with the CIA if that theory's true huh Kind of got got raked over the coals on that one. I'm going to get on my soapbox for a minute. And I apologize if y'all don't like this. Um, but it's I'm going to use my platform in this way. You know, right now, all of your favorite podcasts are telling scary stories about ghosts and monsters and whatnot. And, you know, that's fine. Um, but in my opinion, this is the stuff we should be terrified of. All of these governmental agencies being allowed to run wild without any meaningful oversight. The men and women who run these agencies always have their own agendas. And once they ascend to that throne, they've got enough power to not have to worry about the consequences of running wild. If you get in the way, well, I mean... You see what happened to some pretty powerful dudes in this episode. And like like I harped on, who's going to believe you if you've been labeled a pedophile? Even if you're found not guilty later on, would you trust them? Would you trust somebody who's faced that charge, honestly? You know, would you hire them to work in your office? Would you let them babysit your kids? Would you even be okay sitting next to them at church? And I expect in most people's hearts, the answer is you wouldn't be real comfortable with this. And it's only natural, right? You'd have the same reaction if you were asked to sit next to a known murderer. Okay? So it's not a flaw. It's just who we are. But if you get in the way with somebody with power, you know, today they don't have to plant your fingerprints at a crime scene or throw drugs in the back of your car, you know? They can just hack into your computer, put these images on there instantly. 
you're going to be a sex offender. You're going to go to jail. And no one's ever going to believe you. And so to me, that is the horror tale we should all be concerned about. All right, I'll get off the soapbox. Um, That's just my, I guess, liberal bleeding heart, criminal defense lawyer point of view that can't be contained. If y'all have any thoughts or theories on this case, I seriously would love to hear them. You know, unless your thoughts are just to berate me like one of my coworkers did this week because he didn't like the games I selected for our office college football pick'em game. Otherwise, I would love to hear from you. Y'all are my boys, my girls. Like I always, we can always grab a beer together sometimes. You just got to shout. All right, we're going to move on to the palate cleanser, and we've got a knock-knock joke this week, which, you know, is like the Royals Royce of comedy, right? So here we go. Knock-knock. Who's there? Howie. Howie who? How are we going to hide this body? See, like that, even though it's a knock-knock joke, it ties in nicely with our podcast. So it's a good fit. Well, it's a good choice for my joke curator, right? All right, I'm going to put a wrap on this episode. Thank you, beautiful people, for listening. Please remember we thrive off of what you do, so leave us a review, recommend us to a friend. You can join our Patreon. Whatever you feel comfortable with, and only if you enjoyed your visit. But know that regardless, we appreciate the heck out of you. Even if the only thing you can do is tell a friend about us, that means the world to us. And with that, this is Brad saying, on behalf of Brad, and with many thanks to Brad, Brad out. Thank you for listening to Killing, Missing, Hidden. Make sure to rate, subscribe, and share. Questions? Email us at info at kmhpodcast.com.